Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Hello, I'm Peter King, and welcome to the MMQB Podcast with Peter King, where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, the head coach of the surging Los Angeles Rams, Sean McVay, and Julian Edelman, the wide receiver for the New England Patriots, who's out for the year, but who's got a very interesting book out that I wanted to share with you. But first, a few thoughts on what's going on in the National Football League. I mean, we talk a lot of times here about things like anthem protests, like the future of Roger Goodell, things like that. And this week, I wanted to talk a little bit about the sport. Here we are at the midpoint of the season, and there's three teams in the NFC that if you had said at the start of the year, the power teams in the NFC this year would be the Philadelphia Eagles, the Los Angeles Rams, and the New Orleans Saints with the Minnesota Vikings right there with them. If you were to say those three or four teams were the premier teams in the NFC at the season's midpoint, I mean, people would have thought that you were nuts. But I just want to take one of these teams, and that's the Rams. Haven't had a winning season in 14 years widely ridiculed uh, and questioned for hiring a 30-year-old head coach, the youngest head coach in modern NFL history, in Sean McVay. And you'll hear from McVay in this podcast. And one of the things that I want you to listen to is one of the things that really impresses me about McVay. He's fine with spreading the credit around. He's fine with telling people, oh yeah, I steal plays from other teams. All good coaches do. There's a humility to what he has done uh, with the Rams that I think is really impressive. But more importantly, I think what has happened this year in the NFC is just a sign and what I would tell you and what I tell friends all the time, do not gamble on this game. Don't do it. It's ridiculous. You're not going to win. You might win short term, but you're not going to win long term. Just because Philadelphia Eagles, 8-1 and one at the season's midpoint. Uh, the Los Angeles Rams, 6-2, and two, ahead of the Seattle Seahawks. <laughs> the Minnesota Vikings, 6-2, and two, ahead of everybody in their division. And obviously the New Orleans Saints, it's six and two. Winners of six in a row. Lost their first two games by double digits. Everybody thought another bad Saints defense, another bad Saints season. And to me, it's just a great example of why, despite all the zits on the face of the NFL, why it still is the best and most dramatic and most interesting game. Whatever you say about all the issues the NFL has, the one thing that you have to say is it is pure drama every week. And that's one of the reasons why it's the best sporting reality show in the United States. And now my conversation with the coach of the Rams, Sean McVay. Sean, I really appreciate you joining me. You are uh, about to depart for your game over the weekend uh, in New York. And um, I, I'm, I think I want to start 
with just a question about how far you've come and how fast it's been and how you have not seemed to be overwhelmed in any case by it. But essentially, you're 31 years old. You got this job as the youngest head coach in modern NFL history at age 30 uh, in January with the Rams. So why have you never said, holy crap, I'm pretty young to be an NFL head coach? Well, I appreciate it. Appreciate you saying that. You know, sometimes you definitely do feel that way. But, you know, I think the biggest thing that uh, you go back to, Peter, is what right when I got into coaching, I've been around some amazing mentors that were willing to invest in me and, and kind of just watch them and learn from them. And they kind of took me under their wing, you know, starting out with really my grandfather's influences growing up. And then when you look at just getting right into coaching, you know, working under John Gruden, being around Jay, and then getting a chance to work with Mike and Kyle Shanahan. Bruce Allen's had a huge influence on my career. And, you know, then you get here and, and you're around some great coaches that I'm continuing to learn from every day when you've got guys like Wade Phillips on your staff. So uh, I think it's just about being around great people that, that can kind of help you and you don't feel like you're ever doing it alone, but, you know, you're using those great resources around you to try to continue to grow and learn every single day, and, and that's what's been such a blessing for me. So let's talk about your pedigree a little bit. Your grandfather, yeah. your grandfather John McVeigh was the head coach of the New York Giants uh, in the late 70s and later worked under Bill Walsh uh, with the San Francisco 49ers uh, during their real dynasty period in the 90s. And so tell me a little bit about his influence on your life and what he's meant to your career. Yeah, he, he's been extremely instrumental, Peter. And, and I think really it goes back to some of the things that you don't even realize you're picking up at the time that, you know, when you're able to look back on it and, you you know, you don't realize what a blessing it is to have the Niners be in the same division as the Falcons when I was growing up in Atlanta and guys like, you know, Jerry Rice and Steve Young are coming out. You're spending time with them on Fridays going through their normal walkthrough and their routines and, you know, just kind of being around that atmosphere. And, and the thing that's been so great about my grandfather is, he's got such a good perspective from being a coach and then also being involved in the personnel side. And uh, I think one of the things that allowed them to be so successful in, in San Francisco for so many years is that he and Bill were on the same page and you could see they were able to empower some of those veteran players that were their best players. And those guys ended up being the leaders and kind of setting the standard. And in a lot of ways, you know, we're really trying to mimic and emulate a lot of those things that allowed them to do things at such a high level for so long because of the people that they had in those big-time positions, and then when you bring people into the building, everybody kind of falls in line because those leaders set the standard and nobody's above it. You, um, When you went to college, I want to go back to your college days because I find it interesting. You went to Miami of Ohio. Uh, you graduated 10 years ago this past spring. That, that sort of tells everybody uh, how far you've come and how fast it's been. But when you went to Miami and you played wide receiver there, did you walk in the door to Miami of Ohio thinking, I want to play football for a living, I want to coach football for a living, or I want to do something else? What did you think yeah. when you were a freshman in college? No, it's a, it's a good question. And I think, you know, really just growing up around the sport, I knew I wanted to be involved in it in some form or fashion. And I think you start to gain a little bit realistic perspective that you want to go and compete and do a good job in college and you got an opportunity to go and play on a scholarship. But I think I realized, you know, that it, that it wasn't probably going to be something that I was going to be able to do for a living for a long time, you know, once you get a little bit further into your career. But I did know that I wanted to be involved in it. Now, I didn't know whether that was going to be in personnel or coaching. And right when my college career ended, the opportunity to get on Coach Gruden's staff came about. And soon as you get on the grass with the players and, and you know that interaction and that involvement you realize that what you know what you definitely want to do is coach because that interaction with the players being able to try to help guys get better on the field is is really what gives you the biggest enjoyment and what you love the most about it and so what was it like playing football did you love playing football or do you love coaching football more you know, I think I love the competitiveness. I think I wish I had the perspective that I do now as a player where, you know, you kind of just try to do the best you can in terms of that approach and that preparation. You can go play with a quieted mind and, and different things like that. But 
I've always loved being around the competitive nature of what this game brings and uh, loved it as a player, certainly love it as a coach. And, and I think, you know, in a different manner, you know, some of the feelings and the competitiveness that you get as a coach is, is what you love so much about it. And certainly I think one of the things that everybody would agree on is that there's no better feeling than that, you know, that locker room uh, after you share a victory with your team and, and with your coaching staff and, and just the excitement that that brings when kind of that whole week's worth is culminated in those three hours if you get the result that you want. Sean, I want to tell you a quick story from the NFL owners' meetings this past year. Um, I ran into Mike Tomlin, and he talked about loving his time at the scouting combine when he's able to spend time talking to young coaches like you and Uh Kyle Shanahan and, and others, and that he loves it because he wants to know what's next. And he also likes the part of being able to share whatever he can share with you guys to help you guys be, uh, you know, to help you guys along in your career as far as the other parts of the head coaching job. Tell me about your relationship with Mike Tomlin and how maybe you've had some mutually beneficial discussions with him over the last few years. Yeah, you know, I, the one thing that I've been so impressed with just since I was so fortunate to be in this role is, is how great really the entire, you know, all the coaches around the league have been to me in terms of just willing to try to offer advice and a perspective. But Mike in particular is a guy that, you know, I've gotten to know really through some mutual relationships with really, I, I, we're both good friends with Raheem Morris, and that was kind of how our relationship started and how we met. And he's been a guy that I've always had such a huge amount of respect for, just the way that he leads and carries himself, I think. Uh, he's got that swagger and that confidence, but he's also uh, such a great leader, and he's mentally tough. You, know, you look at when they go through good and bad, he handles everything the same, and I think his team embodies that uh, resilient mindset and mentality. But what I've, you know, what I've come to learn from Mike is, you know, just how willing he is to do exactly what he said to you, Peter, and that's share and, and try to gain a perspective and really help out because. The one thing that everybody always told you is that until you get into the role, you certainly can't anticipate the amount of things that do come up. But as long as you're consistent with the way you approach every single day, uh, then at least people know what they're getting from you and, and you know, have your core beliefs that will kind of help lead and guide you. And don't be afraid to, to say that I don't know and, and lean on those people that are around you that can help. And that's been some of the best advice that I've been able to get, you know, up to this point. We know that it's still early on in the first season, but having a resource like Mike and some other guys around the league like a Jay Gruden is, is something that is really valuable to me. Why would you say, Sean, why would you say this job has not been too big for you? Uh, you know, I, I think it's just, a, I, I think it goes back to, you know, particular, um, you know, the kind of the goal and the intent when we try to fill out our staff was to make it a well-rounded group with some veteran leaders. When you look at our defensive staff, you know, you got Wade Phillips and Joe Barry, Bill Johnson, the guy with a lot of experience. And you look at offense and you got guys like Aaron Cromer and Greg Olson who have been coordinators in this league and had such a you know huge amount of success throughout their careers. And Skip Pete's been doing it for a long time. And then you get some other younger coaches that are around my age that you get some exposure to that you know are, are special leaders, you know, not to mention John Fossil and how invaluable he is. So there's a bunch of guys that, you know, you never feel like you're alone when you're taking on this journey. And I think that's what's made it, uh, you know, smooth so far. Was there a moment in the first seven games of this year, the first half of this season, where you felt like you guys as a team had arrived and were really really going to be a threat this year? I kind of look at the Dallas game uh, when you went on the road and won that game sort of against a lot of odds that day. But has there been a moment, has there been a game this year where you feel like you, you've sort of made the league sit up and take notice about you guys? You know, I think the thing that's been so good about our team, Peter, is that really when you look at the first seven games of the season, we've had a chance to experience a lot of different things, both good and bad. And what I've been most impressed with, you know, the thing that really stands out to me as much as anything is right after we lost to the Washington game, we immediately had something set up in the locker room afterwards where we started our recovery process right away because we were playing on a short week on Thursday. And I remember walking around in the locker room and we were certainly disappointed to not come away with, with a win and, and get to 2-0 and at that point. But what the players just demonstrated to me was kind of the mental toughness that we want to try to embody. And that's don't blink, but let's, let, let's not let the Redskins beat us twice. Let's learn from the mistakes and 
what those guys did is they got, you know, they got themselves recovered and refreshed right away, and, and they started that process. And I was just impressed with their ability to, to move forward with a positive, resilient mindset and mentality. I think it showed up with the way we played against the Niners. But what's been, you know, what's been good is that we've always responded the right way, you know, to some of the things that maybe haven't gone our way, especially the Seattle game and the Washington game, the ones that stand out. But over time, you know, really we talk about the, the truest measurement of performance is that consistency. And, you know, we've got to do it for the, for the nine games that we know we have for sure left. And, and right now it's about making sure that we do a good job against the Giants, which very tough opponent, familiar with them from being in that division for the last handful of years. And, and it's going to be a great challenge for our football team. I remember on the first day of training camp, I was there watching your first practice. And I bet 80, 90% of the practice – you were you spent with the quarterbacks and you were hands on coaching. How important has that been for you this year to make sure that Jared Goff that 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 you're in Jared Goff's ear an awful lot? Well, I think it is important, Peter. You know, I think we've got Greg Olson does a great job, and I think now the floor is an excellent offensive coordinator for us. But I also think, especially just given the fact that you know, you're going to be calling plays that, that he and I need to have a great understanding of what we want to get done. You know, we talk about the quarterback being an extension of the coaching staff all the time. And, and I think as long as Jared and I are on the same page and, and we kind of feel the same ways, you know, that relationship is, is so vital. And I, and I want to make sure that he kind of understands what we're trying to get done. And, and then I can also understand his perspective on things because there's no more there's no more important position in that quarterback spot and, and everything that we do on offense starts with with that quarterback in mind and if there's things that we're asking him to do that maybe he doesn't like or maybe we're not doing things that he does like uh, that's our job to find ways to get those things in and, and make him as comfortable as possible which is how difficult that position is uh, especially in this league and what defenses present week in and week out this is the MMQB podcast they say in life there are no guarantees They say there's no sure thing. Well, I'm here to tell you there might just be one exception. In 1924, Husky started making things for people who make things. And they did it with common sense. That meant adding function never frills and making tools that stand the test of time. 93 years later, Husky is still making quality crafted, durable tools. And Husky stands behind their hand tools for life so they gave their hand tools a lifetime warranty. Like the Husky Ratchet, with a 100-position ratcheting design and a 10% longer handle than standard ratchets. That makes it do what other ratchets can't. Or the virtually unbreakable Husky Flashlight, with the ability to withstand a 30-foot drop and work in up to one meter of water submersion. Both guaranteed for a lifetime but built so you won't need it. Now, that's a pretty sure thing. And to Husky, that's common sense. Husky, common sense tools since 1924, with hand tools guaranteed for a lifetime. Found only at the Home Depot. This question is going to be a tad complex or, or a little bit long, but it's something that I noticed. I watched a couple of games today of yours just because I knew we would be talking. And one of the games I watched was the Rams-Cowboys game. And one of the plays I, I was very, very interested in seeing, and I watched it about 10 times, was the long touchdown pass to Todd Gurley out of the backfield. And yep. I, I've I've sort of had the opinion number one that you <clears throat> you know basically and and again this is not reflective in any way of the previous coaching staff but the previous coaching staff sort of looked at Todd Gurley as Eddie George you kind of looked at Todd Gurley as Marshall Falk potentially anyway and you were going to see if if that part of the game could work but what I really liked about this play call specifically is what you did to the defense on this play. Specifically, what you did is you had Tavon Austin lined up wide left, and you had him come into motion as though he were going to run sort of a jet sweep. And and then instead of giving the ball to Tavon Austin, uh, basically Todd Gurley ran a wheel route out of the backfield. But because there was so much action and so much concentration seemingly on Tavon Austin 
you know, it was like Gurley was maybe just going to bleed out as sort of a safety valve guy, but he didn't. He kept going and going and going, and it was like, you know, it was almost like he was a slot receiver running a go. And the linebackers, two linebackers, he dissected them, and he just went past them, and he was wide open. And it was a pretty easy touchdown. But I want to ask you about that specifically, about Todd Gurley, but secondarily about how, in my opinion anyway, one of the things you have in common with Sean Payton is that Sean Payton does an awful lot, not only because he knows he's got a really good quarterback, but he does a lot to confuse a defense so that at the end of the day, the option for him with Drew Brees and for you with Jared Goff, it's going to be pretty plain and simple what Goff should do with the ball. And I know that that's a three-minute question, and I apologize. But I saw yeah. that, and I just wanted you to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, no, it's it's a great question because really, you know, I think starting out with just kind of the way that we want to utilize Todd, I think the thing, thing out that we were most impressed with as a staff when we first got here, Peter, is that, you know, I, I had never been around him, but just kind of admired his career from afar. And, and you obviously recognize and realize what a special runner he is. But as soon as he got here, you know, as soon as we connected and I got the job here, you know, you realize that he's a very functional receiver where he can catch the ball outside of the formation, not exclusive to just coming out of the backfield. You know, he can run routes from width and different things. And we gave him the opportunity to do that, and he just worked at it. He spent time after practice and after offseason, you know, program days doing that, and he got better and better. When you've got an elite playmaker like that, I think our job is to try to find as many ways as we can to get the ball in his hands. And that play right there is a good example. You know, you look at he's really running a seam route from the backfield mentioned, and what I think is most impressive about that play just for Todd is that I thought it was a great anticipation on the throw by Jared, but the catch transition, you just don't see back, which is it, you know, over to the underneath defenders, but then the ability to put his foot in the ground and make the middle safety miss and turn what would have been typically a 20-yard play into a 53- or 54-yard touchdown, whatever it was, is what ended up making the difference and really us winning and losing that game because we took the lead at that point on that play and kind of never relinquished it, but you know, and then I think going to just kind of the schematic approach to it, when you've got a playmaker like Tavon who can do some of those different jet sweeps, you know, I think our job as an offensive staff is to try to figure out, you know, how can we present plays that start out looking the same that are different? And that's something that has been influenced from my, you know, time with Coach Gruden. You know, you want to always try to create that conflict, and defenses are so fast and have the ability to turn and run that if you can give them some different things that take them off their keys, you give yourself a chance to open up some windows and maybe attack some of the core coverages that you're seeing in that particular instance. It was Dallas in a 3D corner knee structure where you're kind of overloading the zone with a core principle that, you know, the four verts, but then Tavon ends up being kind of your underneath flare control on the jet sweep to that action. So it was a great job by our players. And I'd be lying if I said I didn't steal that play from Kansas City first ran it against the Patriots in week one on that Monday night game where they hit Kareem Hunt down the seam for about 70. And then the Patriots actually ran it the following week against New Orleans and had some success hitting, uh, hitting their back for about 24. And, and, you know, we, I saw that and I said, you know, that's a great, great idea by those coaching staffs. And uh, it kind of fits with what we want to do. So we've kind of had worked it for the next couple of weeks and then pulled it out against Dallas in week four. So that reminds me of something that buddy Ryan once told me, this is, probably when you were about four years old, <laughs> but Buddy Ryan once told me, he said, I'm never too proud to steal from somebody who's got a good play. How do you oh, feel about no that? There's no doubt about it. I think, I think there's too many great coaches around this league and there's great ideas on tape week in and week out with the way that the video system is set up and kind of having some of these plays at your exposure. I think you always want to be mindful of keeping within the framework of what your foundation is and how you want to operate systematically. But if something fits based on your players and, you know, some of the things that you're doing and maybe what you've shown on tape. Uh, I'm not too proud to, to say that, hey, those are great coaching staffs and, uh, you know, definitely feel fortunate that they had those ideas and, and we were able to implement it and have some success with it in, uh, in L.A. Do you remember, were you watching that Thursday night game and you saw that play or did you not see that for a few days afterwards? Yeah, the, the that's right. It was, it was the first game on Thursday night. Yep, yep. No, right. no, I saw it. You know, I thought it was I thought it was an incredibly creative idea because typically you're not seeing backs come out of the backfield and run scenes. And you look at the stress that it put on them. And 
um, especially when you had a player like a Tyreek Hill kind of coming in that motion like we have with Tavon. So it kind of fit for us, and, and uh, you know, our players made it a play, and we've kind of continued to utilize uh, versions of that play off of the things where you're giving Tavon the jet sweeps and things like that, and, and that's been a big part of kind of how we want to try to continue to run the football is uh, using the width of the football field. You know, you hear the defensive coaches all the time talk about make them earn every blade of grass. Well, I feel like for us offensively, it's about making them defend every blade of grass in the run and the pass game, and, and that's what we're trying to do. What would you say right now do you feel you really need to improve on? Obviously, when you're 31 years old, you don't have all the answers. Even though you're winning games, you must think to yourself watch, walking in the building at 5 o'clock in the morning sometimes, today I have to get better at blank. Yeah, you know, I don't think you can ever, you know, you know I think you can always get better as a leader and, and just continuing to find ways to, you know, to do be right consistently. And, and that's whether that's managing the game. You know, one of the things that, you know, specific to the game day management that I have to do a better job with is uh, not burning timeouts early in the half. You know, we've had some couple instances that uh, I've got to do a better job of avoiding where we need to use timeouts kind of early on. And, and we could have used them, whether it be at the end of the game or the end of half in some games where I burn them too early. And, and that's part of the game management thing that's required of a head coach that I'll continue to try to learn from and improve on. But you know, I think, you know, just being up to speed with what's going on in the game, you know, always from a schematic standpoint and, and then just continuing to find ways to connect with people and, and learn about them and, and always try to improve as a leader and as a motivator in an authentic and genuine way. But this job provides such a challenge because you never know what's going to come across your desk. But as long as you're able to, to consistently make decisions that you feel like are in the best interest of the team and you know, you want to make sound decisions consistently, but when you do make one that's wrong, you know, I think admitting to mistakes and being accountable is something that's very important. And we talk about that with, with our players, and, and I expect the same from myself as a coach. So uh, I think you can always continue to improve in those areas, and, and really that consistency like we talk about for our team is, is the thing that I want to make sure that I'm doing, you know, in this role for, for our organization and for our team and coaching staff. In the mid-90s, Mike Holmgren allowed me to spend a week in the life of the Green Bay Packers. And it was during a game week. They were getting ready to play the Minnesota Vikings. And on Thursday afternoon, he said, uh, this is something that I never thought in all my years in football I would ever have to do. But just sit here in the back of my office and just listen to what is about to happen. So he brought in two, uh, two of his rookies. One was a running uh -huh. back named Travis Jervy. And he brought him in and he said, it has come to my attention that you two guys are rooming together and in your apartment you have a pet lion. And they said, yes, that's right, coach. It's just a, just a cub. And so Holmgren was beside himself. He could not believe that these two numbskulls had a pet lion in their apartment in Green Bay, Wisconsin. So he ordered them to get rid of it. And when they sort of protested a little bit, he, he said to him in no uncertain terms that if you don't get rid of that lion by Monday, then you guys will both be cut. And I'm going to tell everybody in the league what a bunch of nincompoops you are, and you'll never get another <laughs> job. Okay, coach. Yeah, I'll get it. So have you had a moment where you've had to do something where you said, man, I never thought as a head coach in the, in the NFL I would have to do X. And, and keep in mind, I doubt many coaches have ever had to say to players, you got to get rid of a lion. <laughs> yeah, I, that is, uh, that's a great story. I haven't heard that one. But, you know, I, I, think, I think, first of all, Coach Holmgren was able to handle a situation in that manner because he, has a whole, he had a whole lot more clout than I have at this point. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think, I think when you look at our team, I think there's a lot of things that do come up that, that surprise you. I would say the biggest thing that I'm surprised with is how many non-football-related things you have to deal with. And you have an appreciation on just the amount of – uh, planning and, and things that go into something like our trip that we just made, you know, going to Jacksonville, staying in Jacksonville, then going to London to play the Cardinals, all the things that are required to have a whole organization basically lift up and, and leave for a couple weeks to play a couple games and then bring everything back with the video, with our training staff, with our medical staff equipment. You know, I think you just gain a greater appreciation for, you know, what a big operation you know, being a part of an NFL team really is and how vital and important everybody in that organization is to try to be successful and do things consistently the right way. But 
haven't had any good stories like that, but I'm sure hopefully uh, down the road I'll, I'll have some good ones for you when I come on and do this with you again. <laughs> Sean, two other quick things. Number one, I saw the video from the locker from the post game locker room after you guys played uh, Dallas, and mm-hmm. I gained a lot of respect for you that day because this clearly was okay. You had you'd beaten the Colts. You'd beaten the Niners, but here you go. You're going to play in. You're going to play America's team on the road with the great and powerful Dak Prescott, Ezekiel Elliott, Jerry Jones up in the box. I mean, this is this is a big game, and yet, and you won the game, thirty-five to thirty. And basically, after the game, you gave a game ball to Johnny Hecker, and you told everybody how great Johnny Hecker was. And then you gave the other game ball to Wade Phillips. Because even though the, your defense didn't shut them down, he, he, you know they allowed 30 points, and you could see it was a little bit of a sheepish thing for Wade to get a game ball on, on a day where his defense allowed 30 points. But the whole point was, hey, Wade Phillips used to coach this team. He's coming back into this house. You know, he deserves this and everything. And then you got out of the way. And you let Wade Phillips have his moment. You let Johnny Hecker have his moment. You didn't try to hog the moment. Where'd you learn that? You know, I, you know, I, I appreciate you saying that. I think, I think really, you know, just being around good examples. You know, my dad has been such a great leader and such a mentor for me. And I remember getting a chance to do an internship with him when I was in college. And he was running KTVU, which at the time was the Fox affiliate in the San Francisco, Oakland market. And, just watching the way that he communicated with people and, and treated everybody the same, but then also wasn't afraid to, you know, step back and empower those other people. It was kind of just the way you felt where that was an important game, you know, really to our team, but also with Wade and the influence that he's had on the Cowboys organization and his history there, but also our defense did a great job stepping up in the second half and uh, feel very fortunate to, to work with somebody like him. And, and I thought it was good to be able to give him a chance to, you know, to to appreciate and value that moment that, that I know would be special if I was in his shoes. And, and that's why, you know, working with great people like him, you want to make sure they know how important they are to you and, and to your organization. Uh, finishing up with Sean McVay, the coach of the Los Angeles Rams. Sean, I wonder, part of this whole thing with you is that uh, basically, you know, the Rams had lost for, for several years in a row. And they needed desperately to win, not only because you're in the NFL, you have to win, but because this is a flagship franchise in the NFL that is going back into the number two market in the country. And it's nobody's going to see the Rams play if you lose. I don't care how shiny your stadium is. I don't care how wonderful it is. If you lose, they're not coming. And I wonder the pressure of going into a market this size, knowing what is at stake with this multi-billion dollar stadium, with the league looking to revive Los Angeles. You didn't get a coaching job in Cincinnati. You didn't get a coaching job in New Orleans or Jacksonville. You got it, and part of your job is to reinstitute the Los Angeles Rams as a power franchise in the NFL, not only in a football sense, but so that the league can say, hey, we've got a rock-solid franchise in Los Angeles. How much of that do you feel? You know, I think uh, I think that, you know, anytime you get an opportunity to be one of 32 and, and do the job that we're doing is such a blessing and, and you appreciate it. But what I thought was so great about, you know, getting to do it in a great city, you know, like Los Angeles, big market, great weather, a lot of nice things that, that the city has to offer outside of football is, what a great opportunity to, to live in a place and coach in a place that you love and, and try to get this, this, these fans to embrace the product that we're trying to put out on the field. So we felt like it was something that, you know, not really added pressure, but almost was an exciting element to the equation because wherever you're coaching, you know, you certainly want to try to do the best you can to put your players in, in a position to win football games. And it's a production-based business, and we know that, but I think doing it with good people, uh, the right types of people, you know, right types of players, you know, good good football players, but that are also good people, which is what we feel like we've got on our football team. You feel very confident, and, and this market provides an excellent opportunity to go attack, an opportunity to try to sustain some success over time. 
you know, seven games into it, I think, you know, we're headed in the right direction. But the really the truest measure will be where you're at at the end of the season and, and hopefully where you're at for years to come. But uh, what our approach is, and, and we focus on that process, and that's just one day at a time, one meeting, one practice, and one day. And and, and, and our guys have embraced that and bought into it. And, and I feel like if we continue on with this, we'll give ourselves a chance to, to do some of the things that we set out to accomplish as a group. Sean McVay, head coach, Los Angeles Rams. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast and uh, the best of luck the rest of the way. Always enjoy it. Good talking to you, Peter. All the best. Hey, listen, thanks a million. I can't thank you enough. Oh, hey, no problem, man. You have uh, you guys have always been great to me, so anytime that I uh, get a chance to talk to you, I always enjoy it. You're listening to the MMQB Podcast. State Farm knows that for football fans, your car and your home are more than just stuff. They're some of your most valuable possessions. The things you've worked hard for and have made a lifetime of memories with. Whether it's the truck that gets you at every tailgate, or the place where you watch your favorite team with your favorite people. But life can be a tough opponent. That's why when it comes to finding the right home and auto insurance, you need a strong defense. A seasoned pro like State Farm because they understand it's more than just a car or a house. So why not give it the protection it deserves? It's just one more way State Farm is here to help life go right. See how they can help you by talking to a State Farm agent today. And now my conversation brought to you by State Farm with New England wide receiver Julian Edelman. Now a quick point about this conversation. I did this in August. This is before Julian Edelman was lost for the season with a knee injury, but it is much about the new book that he has out this month written with Tom Curran, Uh, and I think there's a lot of educational stuff in this book, not only about the life of Julian Edelman, but about how he got to this point against all odds. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King, joined by Julian Edelman of the New England Patriots. Um, Julian, we're recording this during training camp, and we're going to actually run it when your book comes out. Uh, Relentless, a memoir with you and Tom Curran. And we're going to talk about that in a couple of minutes, but just before we started here, and here you are in training camp, just before we started, you talk about how your life changed this offseason by having a baby. You didn't actually have the baby, no, but no. you had the baby. And so tell me what that has been like and how has it kind of changed your world? You know, it's, it's, it's been an unbelievable experience, um, you know, to see, you know, this little baby uh, grow and, and do something for the very first time in front of your eyes that looks like you, that has mannerisms like you, your family. Um, it's just been something that has been really cool and and really has made you think that you really haven't truly experienced love until you had a child because instantly when you have a child at least you know through my experience your priorities change you know it's not about you anymore it's it's about the future of what you got going with with your with your daughter so it's been a it's been a pretty cool cool experience are you, do you think, a different person because of it? I mean, you definitely do a little changing, um, you know, uh, especially with the baby girl. Pete. Yeah. Especially with the baby girl. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where uh, you, you constantly are thinking, you know, what, we, what would your daughter think about this, you know, in, in, in a decision making. So, you know, it definitely it definitely changes you with Julian Edelman of the New England Patriots. So, Julian, this book that you had come out, I remember at the Super Bowl it was in New York. We had a deal where on Saturday night you, me, and Vernon Davis uh, did an event in front of some advertisers. I really didn't know you very well that Mm -hmm. day. But when I think about, think back to an hour and a half just talking about life and football and your upbringing, because my biggest question to you is, how in the world does an option quarterback at Kent State become a key player on a Super Bowl team? You have to admit it's a little bit bizarre. And that day, you told me the story of your dad. 
and I will never forget one of the stories that you told me about your dad, Frank. You said, my dad, and, he's, and you said, I don't mean this in a bad way, but my dad is the kind of guy who, if I went three for four in a baseball game, and we got in the car to go home and we won, and I played really well, he'd say, let's talk about that one at bat where you struck out. And he said, now, and you said that day. Now, a lot of people would think that that's bad and that that is almost abusive. But for me, I could take it. I wanted it. I was hungry for that kind of, I sought perfection. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about what your dad was like and what it was like for you to deal with that kind of sort of omnipresent pressure in your sporting life growing up. You know, uh, it's been pretty public, the relationship between my father and I. And, uh, you know, it's it's been, you know, with this past year, you really look and you analyze after having a child how all those little things that your parents did, you know, not just my father, but my mother as well. But it was more for the sport training and then going through the, the battles that my father and I had that he was just trying to make you better. You know, when you're young uh, and you're, you're a kid, you know, it, it may not seem at that point in your life that it, it is anything to do with, you, you may not think it's pretty good for you. Let's just say that. Uh, you may snivel, you may pout, you may, uh, you know, make a face, this, that. And, you know, my dad was the type of guy that would challenge me. And he would challenge me to the point where he got under my skin and he was trying to do that on purpose because he would always say, you have to be mentally tough if you want to make it. And, you know, me being a stubborn kid and getting that stubbornness from my mother, it was one of those things where, you know, I wanted to prove him wrong when he challenged me and it pissed me off. And, you know, in baseball, for example, he'd be throwing inside at me, you know, a pitch and I'd be dipping my shoulder and you know, he would, he would throw it closer to me. And, you know, I would start spitting towards the mound and say, throw it harder, you know, and, and swing hard. I was swinging harder. And, it, you know, it got to the point where, you know, one day I charged a mound on him and, you know, he had to put me in my place, you know. And, and, but that was, that's how it was. You know, that's, that's how it was with the Edelman household. And I wouldn't be where I'm at without that. With Julian Edelman of the Patriots. Um, very curious how a kid from Redwood City, California, ends up at Kent State and ends up being an option quarterback. Tell me exactly how you got to Kent State, and then I just think it's absolutely bizarre you ended up in the seventh round with the Patriots, but bizarre but kind of fitting. Mm-hmm. You know, you get you can get most of the details in Relentless, but I'll, I'll break down a few things here. You know, I, I went into uh, to junior college, college of the San Mateo, college of San Mateo, and I wasn't recruited out of high school. I wasn't even recruited by the majority of junior colleges, except for College of San Mateo, which is a huge part of my foundation and and where I started my football journey. And having that that chip on your shoulder I, I set a goal I can remember out of high school you know I, getting my feelings hurt seeing all your friends go to you know four-year universities you know the Berkeley's and and the UC Davis's and and some of my athlete friends getting scholarships and you know I took it personal I, you were kind of pissed off I was very pissed off I wasn't kind of you know I, I, I got my feelings hurt and I, I, from that day on, went on and made a goal that I wanted to play Division One quarterback. You know, and, and going to Kent, uh, going to CSM, um, they gave me an opportunity um, to play, and, and we had some success. And after my first year, you know, I, I had a bunch of uh, production, and a bunch of schools asked me, uh, you know, to stay in for the next year. I mean, it was the first time I ever felt like I was wanted. I was getting boxes of letters from Florida, BYU, uh, Berkeley, all these schools, but they all wanted me to stay, you know, in school for another year because I went to JUCO. But being a qualifier, qualifier out of high school, taking my SAT and having pretty good grades in high school, um, I was able to leave after a year, and I got a knock 
or a phone call um, from Kent State, and they said they wanted to fly me out to Ohio to check out their university. Now, you know, I go into detail how my feelings were with that in the book. You weren't that excited. <laughs> I, I, I basically said, where's Kent State? Who are they? Is this Division Two? You know, I, didn't, I had no clue. You had no idea about the Mid-American Conference. I actually did, because th- those years, Bowling Green with Brandon Jacob, or what was his name, Jacobs, the quarterback? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know who you're talking Remember, about. He was, yeah. a, he was a Heisman finalist, That's I believe. That's right, yeah, yeah. And they were getting a lot of TV time, and yeah. Ben Roethlisberger with Miami, Miami. Ohio. Yeah, okay, so good. So once I heard those two schools, I was like, all right, maybe, you know, this is kind of cool. But, you know, I went out and took a visit. Um, I, 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 I looked at the talent. I looked at the situation. And, um, you know, I weighed out my options, and I felt it was best to go to Kent State and get to play three years at Division One level. Let's just fast forward to your workouts after you play those three years. And do you know at the time that you're probably going to be a wide receiver in the NFL, or what do you know about your future in the NFL? I didn't really know much. And Did you think you had a real shot? Or were you just kind of praying and hoping? Well, once again, if, if you go, you know, these a lot of these details are in Good. that book. I'm, I'm excited. Yeah. and The book is out this week, by the way, Relentless, a memoir. Exactly. Julian Edelman yeah. and Tom Curran. Exactly. And, um, you know, when you're young, you're 22, 20, you know, 22 years old, um, and you have big decision-making to do, you know, I had to lean on people that I trusted the most. And that was that started with my father, and then it also, um, in the whole process of hiring an agent, started with my agency that I picked with Ian Dubin Sports, uh, Don Yee, Steve Dubin, and Carter Chow. And, you know, I sat with them and weighed my options. British Columbia bought my negotiation rights and offered me a contract to play quarterback in Canada, which I was thrilled i mean ecstatic about over you know a contract for a hundred grand to go play quarterback i'm over here thinking i'm rich and i was like man this is going to be an awesome thing but then you know once me and my agent talked you know he sat down and said i feel that you know you have an opportunity to play in the national football league i think it's going to be hard for a team to cut you um put it on your film you make people look dizzy i remember that from day one um that's what don said and so I weighed my options, and my dad said, it's pretty cool to go to Canada and get to play quarterback. And I said, I didn't, I didn't grow up wanting to play in the CFL. You know, I wanted to play in the NFL, and, you know, that's where I made my decision. And we knew it was going to have to be a position change. It's the MMQB Podcast. I don't know about you, but I don't like to shave. Honestly, who does? Nicks and scratches on your face, they're not fun. And let's face it, razors are super expensive. That is, I thought they were until I got my first package of razors from Harry's. And that first package of razors, I'll tell you, the one interesting thing that I found is the razor handle. I mean, they say it's ergonomic, and I'm not really sure what that means. All I know is that I'm a shower shaver, shave in the shower, and all the time that I've shaved in my life, the razors got very slippery in the shower, and this handle is fantastic. This handle's worth the price of admission from Harry's. I really love it. The non-slippery handle. Hey, who'd have thought about it? Now, here's where it gets good for you. Harry's is so confident you'll love their blades, they're giving you their trial set for free. You just cover the shipping. Your free trial set includes a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. That's a $13 value for you to try. Stop messing around and start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your free trial offer. A $13 value for free. You just cover the shipping. To get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel, go to harrys.com slash king right now. That's harrys.com slash king. I thought one of the really cool decisions that you made and that I read this part in the book, okay, was that you decided 
Tom Brady is in Los Angeles. So he's throwing to guys out there, maybe Wes Welker, maybe Randy Moss, mm -hmm. whoever. But he's throwing to guys out there. And so I'm going to go there. And maybe the phone will ring one day and he'll say, let's, let's throw, let, let me throw to Edelman. But tell me about that decision and what exactly happened. Well, you know, over... Over the year of my rookie year, I would hear the stories about, you know, Brady going out to L.A. and throwing with receivers. And, you know, luckily my agency represents Tom as well. Yeah. So I would, you know, get a little insight on things, and I'd always ask them, you know, where's Tom going to be in the off season? And, and they said L.A., and so I told them, you know, hey, give me a place somewhere in, out there. Find me somewhere I can train. Um, and let Tom know if, if he needs someone to throw to, um, especially with Walker being out from his ACL injury that year, uh, that I'll be in Los Angeles. And, you know, I went out there, moved out there. It was a Friday. I can remember like it was yesterday. I was at a barbecue in Marina del Rey, and I get a call, and it was Tom. And he said, you want to go throw at UCLA? I dropped everything, went straight to UCLA, got my cleats, my gloves. I was there for 30 minutes warming up before he got there. And, you know, that's kind of how it went. And, you know, that was the only time he called me that year. But, you know, having that relentless mindset, the next year I went out there and I got a couple more. And then, you know, the next year, you know, you get a few more. So, you know, that, that was a way of me to kind of, you know, he's the hand that feeds you, you know, and, and the, the better – he knows you, and the, the better you know him, uh, the more comfortable, and that's when trust is, is gained. So I was trying to put myself in the position to do that. I think one of the really cool things is that you have this now, this kind of relationship that basically has, you know that maybe you're going out to Montana Mm -hmm. to the Nirvana place out, out among the mountains and you're going to throw there or you throw somewhere else. But how important has that been in your mind? How can you, how can you quantify the importance of throwing so much in your career with him in the off season, as to how you've been able to have that success? Well, I mean, I, th I think... You know, that, that's been a huge part um, of my success is, is the ability to go out and not only just throw with him, but to learn how he is as a professional, how he takes care of his body, how he rests, his recovery, the work that he puts in. Um, you know, Alex Guerrero working with him um, through Tom Brady um, and, and going out and, and really doing things and training smarter than usual not going out there and working hard working smart that's what he'd always tell me when i was young he was never he was always telling me you know you, you work hard but you just don't know what you you have to work on and once i figured that out you know going out and, and running routes because that's what i do you know not just going out and lifting weights pulling sheds and this that go out and incorporate those things with route running um till you get sick till you can't run like those types of things and that's what we did um and that's ultimately what made me better it's because you know running routes like dancing and every plays an experience and the less you have to think about your route and the more you can think about a defender gives you a better opportunity to get open so you know those are some of the things i learned alex Guerrero sort of has this uh has this reputation in some circles as being kind of a wacky crazy something some something of a quack mm -hmm. and a lot of people are very very skeptical that he has a positive impact on people mm -hmm. and i don't know i look out here and see brady's 40 years old he looks like he's 27 I, I so you know give me some of what he's eating give me some of the avocado ice cream but yeah. tell me how do you defend people i'm sure have said well, what about this guerrero guy so how do you sort of defend him you know, I, I play for the Patriots. I mean, we're, we, we're, we hear that type of stuff all the time. Um, you know, anytime someone is successful at something, there's going to be someone to try to bring him down. And, you know, with Alex, I mean, there's going to be a lot of people out there that think he is a quack, but, I mean, the proof is in the pudding. <laughs> you look at Tom Brady, like you said, he looks like he's 27 years old. The man is 40. Um, and... 
being around him for so long and just seeing the little things like i don't go all out like tom you know i'll have a cheeseburger here and i like to eat and you know i'll toss Do down you occasionally a have a beer i'll have a beer you know i'm <laughs> how dare you i know exactly and you don't go to bed at 8 30 at night that's, that's awful. different I, I actually during the season i go to bed pretty early it yes. is yeah. you learn those types of things and he's he's the information that you learn it from you know he gives us all that information on how to eat what to eat your body inflammatory uh, inflammatories that make your body uh, inflamed what makes your body uh, you know through nutrition recover the fastest you know all those types of things the body um, work that he does on us uh, the pliability the hydration I mean the more I've listened to him the more I've stayed on the field so it's been a case study because I was the same way at first. You know, you're, it's like a leap of faith going against, going against a lot of things um, that, uh, that people say, that it's the studies and all that and going with what Alex says. Um, and through his 30 years of experience and, and case studies, you know, he's seen every injury and it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure to get to work with him and that's how it's been. Here's the thing that I would – that really sort of hit me so a week after the Super Bowl I went to Montana mm -hmm. I spent some time with Tom I we did this did this podcast for 76 minutes mm -hmm. and he was really good talking about the Super Bowl and everything like that but what was so interesting is we finished at the end I was leaving saying goodbye and we were talking a little bit about his off-season regimen and at one point he just said hey Peter feel this and he held out his arm and I touched his arm, and he said, see? I mean, and, like, it felt like my arm. Mm -hmm. It was, as you say, pliable. Pliable. Okay, and I would think that you're an NFL player. Your forearm is hard as a rock. The underside of your forearm is hard as a rock. And I'm sure that for a lot of positions, yeah. yes, that's the case. But he said, why do I need to be muscle-bound in my forearm? I need flexibility. I need so that's why he's the he's he's yoga. He's stretching. 100%. He's that. It's more important at that position, and probably a lot at your position too. You need a little suit of armor, you know, weight wise. But you also need to be really flexible. Hundred percent. I mean, that's that's the thing he does. Um, you know, his his techniques. You know, he works your muscle wall. You're doing a movement. And the more pliable your muscle is, instead of going out and lifting or, or doing an activity, say you go run 65 routes in the off season. If I go home and sit up and just do nothing, there's gonna be a lactic acid build, your body's gonna get stiff, you, you break your muscles down, and there's gonna be that lactic acid that just sits in there. And with Alex, after I run my routes, which I get worked on twice a day by Alex, you know, before and after, He'll flush my legs to get all that gunk out of there, and it allows my body to recover quicker because it's bringing blood to the area that I broke down. Now, you know, a lot of people can try to argue it. I mean, it works for me. I've literally been doing it now for probably six, seven years, and I feel, you know, it's a huge part of... How old of, are you right now? I'm 31. Yeah, and so you feel... I feel good. Yeah, you feel good? Yeah, yeah. I feel real good. As we end this, I really want to ask you about the catch in the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. There were two moments in the Super Bowl where catches were made where people said that is that just didn't happen. Obviously, the Julio Jones catch, one of the great catches, I think, in NFL history. Mm -hmm. And your catch, uh, you know, a millimeter off the carpet where you're getting absolutely mugged and abused. Okay, so I really want to know from your perspective... You, you watch that catch, obviously, after the game and everything. How were you able to make that catch? Um, you know, it, it, I think a lot of it has to, to do with just feeling like a cornered animal, almost. That sense of if you don't at least get this ball on the ground, that your season and everyone's fortunes on the team are over, that sense of relentlessness you know of going and, and doing everything you can to first not let it get picked but second being able to you know for some reason keep my eye on that ball um and and try to go after it and take it in and you know that, that's kind of what I just tried to do I mean was it luck was it skill I, I I can't tell you that 
Um, what I was could, so cool is the NFL Films footage yeah. caught you telling the Falcons. Yeah, I cool. caught that. Yeah. I, it's it's good. It's good. Yeah. I caught it, and they said, "No way, no way." Yeah, and you know, I do a lot of, I do a lot of these tennis ball drills with different colored tennis balls, um, and I have a guy throw them. One of our equipment low? guys, huh? You throw them low. Well, I do it at all different angles for my eyes, and I have two different colors, and I catch one color with my right, one color with my left, and it's kind of a reaction type training and you know i can usually tell how i'm feeling um nervous system wise through those those kind of drills and you know i do that every day and and you never know that may have helped i'm going to finish and ask you this question i'm very this occurs to me like i go around the nfl and i talk to both players and fans write to me and 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 people write me emails and you guys seem to be almost like around the country almost like villains you know like you're like the team that people love to hate it reminds me a little bit when i was a kid okay the dallas cowboys people hated the dallas cowboys like in the 70s and 80s and i feel almost like okay in new england you guys are gods there's six states in the united states where you're gods you go out there too you go outside of there too far you're not gods Pete, you know, yeah. i mean i mean you looked at the crowd here in west virginia I, they, well they did you we they, travel well now you do you no. do travel well but, but you know you yeah. feel it when you go into road stadiums why do you think you guys are in in many ways, for a lot of people around the NFL and their fans, the villains. I mean, just through, I think, the consistent winning. Um, you know, a lot of people don't like that. And I welcome that feeling. You like it. I love it. Yeah. Julian Edelman, uh, the book is called Relentless, a yeah. memoir by Julian Edelman and Tom Curran. What do you want people to take from that book after they've spent their six or seven hours reading it what do you want the lesson of that book to be i just wanted to get my story across and and let people know that nothing comes easy i mean you can talk about anyone who's successful there's a story behind it and you know reading about other people and in other success stories I've always tried to take things from it and if I you know if I'm able to help one person um, go out there and, and try to track down their dream find their talent work hard um, and be passionate towards that talent uh, you know I feel like you know that that's that's something that I'd be proud of you know it, it's there's a lot of people that help me get to where I'm at and you know, I want to thank those people, but, you know, it's one of those things where maybe in my life I can help someone else, um, you know, fire them up or, or give them some inspiration um, because, you know, I, I, re- I remember days of when you're on the lows of the low and you feel like there's no possible way you can get out of something or there's no possible way you can overcome this. But, you know, I got I got one other thing that I want to tell you that I find so interesting. Huh? The more I cover the NFL, the more I realize, you know what? There's a lot of Julian Edelmans. There yeah. really are. Yeah. I see them in every training camp. I see every year. Every team has like three or four of you guys. Mm-hmm. Okay. What makes the difference between you? I mean, Brady helps. Okay. Yeah. Belichick helps. But there's something about you. In the you know We don't really know each other very well. But in the little time I've been with you, you like will not be denied. You know what? You're good. you're one of these guys that when an NFL team would work you out, I'm sure they would say, "Boy, this guy's going to make it or he'll die trying." And you know that's an exaggeration because you do something else in life. But that's what I think of when I think of you. And that's what I would always say. You know, you know, when I was younger, I always I was always a lot smaller than guys, and then, you know, if we were talking and jawing back and forth, and he said, you know, I was you know, I'm going to beat your, you know, butt, beat you up or something. I said, you better, because if you don't, you better kill me, because if you don't, I'm going to, I'm going to keep coming. And that's just kind of how my story's been, um, you know, through my life, literally from the time I was eight years old till, till even now, 
Julian Edelman, thanks for spending so much time oh, no with me. Problem. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Pete. Thanks to my guest, Sean McVay, the coach of the Los Angeles Rams, and New England wide receiver Julian Edelman. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with Tom Brady, Roger Goodell, and Adam Schefter. You can find these on the MMQB.com or Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the MMQB podcast with Peter King on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM Channel 82. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, Home Depot, State Farm, and Harry's. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week. They say in life there are no guarantees. They say there's no sure thing. Well, I'm here to tell you there might just be one exception. In 1924, Husky started making things for people who make things. And they did it with common sense. That meant adding function never frills and making tools that stand the test of time. 93 years later, Husky is still making quality crafted, durable tools. And Husky stands behind their hand tools for life, so they gave their hand tools a lifetime warranty. Like the Husky Ratchet, with a 100 position ratcheting design and a 10% longer handle than standard ratchets. That makes it do what other ratchets can't. Or the virtually unbreakable Husky Flashlight, with the ability to withstand a 30-foot drop and work in up to one meter of water submersion. Both guaranteed for a lifetime, but built so you won't need it. Now, that's a pretty sure thing. And to Husky, that's common sense. Husky, common sense tools since 1924, with hand tools guaranteed for a lifetime. Found only at the Home Depot. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave.